iceberg. Somewhere. Log on. 22-23. Friday, 22nd December, 2006. File. Story. Talk. Talk to Nano. Keep up the probing. Say anything. Tell the story. No one will get to read it. No one will read the file. Unless they do. But they are reading it now. Reading me. Probing me. Keep out the probing. Talk. Keep talking. Can't think straight. I trusted him. And he betrayed me. Didn't he? How could he? How could he go over to them? You're still with me, Nano, aren't you? Taking in my every word? I can see the glow of your monitor light flashing at every word I speak, every whisper. I'm surprised they didn't take you from me. They will, when they return. They'll take you apart, Nano. Destroy your software, recycle you. Then they will take me apart. They've got him. They'll have you. They'll take away everything, sooner or later, when they return. Doesn't think of that. Talk, keep talking. Tell the story of what's been going on. Perhaps I can hide you somewhere, Nano. When they take me away. Someone might find you, sometime. Buried in the ice. A million years from now. If I don't get out of here. As me. This is Ruby Sara Duval. Sunday secret correspondent. Somewhere under the Antarctic. In a bit of a tight corner. <laughs> There are some corners of the universe which have bred the most terrible things, things which act against everything we believe in. They must be fought. In this episode, we go back in time as Greg and Sam walk around St Paul's Cathedral and speak to David Banks. All other more in this exciting episode of Doctor Who and the Complete Menagerie. Stay safe. We're in a we're in a public house called the Centre Page, right? Okay, uh, which is on Knight Rider Street. Not not related to um, or oh, the David Hasselhoff vehicle. Literally that, a vehicle. That's right. <laughs> Kit, Kit Peddler, no. Kit Peddler, Kit Peddler. Yes. Not, not, yes. Oh no, Kit the car. Kit the car. Is a ca- uh, uh, Kit car? Yeah. Ah, yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Michael Hasselhoff. He, he's uh, he's done very well, hasn't he? He was. Uh, in their bays watch. Yes, yeah. they love him in Germany. Yes, he's, he's a big star there. Big rock star there, like Queen. Big yeah. with the Germans, yeah. yeah. Great taste. They've got yeah. their BMWs, and they've got their cameras. Yeah. Where exactly Bad taste, but where it's, Yes, the centre page on Knight Rider Street uh, in St Paul's. Right. In Significant London. for being... Well, it was the, the location where... The Cybermen walk past the pub, don't they, when they're, they're invading in 1968. In fact, ah. they were filming here in September 1968, and as we're recording, it's um, June 1968. Yeah. So it was a cliffhanger ending, wasn't it, when the Cybermen yeah. walked around the corners, that low-angle yeah. shot, and, and the credits rolled. Yes. And we have these flat-footed Cybermen. Flat-footed, bow-legged Cybermen, flat-flop, yes. walking past the camera. Mm. But it was a lully shot by... Dougie Camfield yes. was directing it. Yes. Uh, 
Yeah, maybe maybe we should recreate that. Maybe we'll do that. Maybe you'll get that. So that shot literally just outside, just a few feet away from us now. And of course, in the background was St Paul's Cathedral, which is quite well known, really, as a Doctor Who location. Yes. In fact, um, uh, I, I was here about 20 minutes early, so I was just milling around St Paul's Cathedral. Sam, you should have seen the crowds and hundreds of people. <laughs> I had no idea the invasion was such a favourite. <laughs> if, if we went round this pub asking the, the patrons, the people patronising the pub here, did you know Doctor Who was filmed literally just outside? Yeah. In an iconic bit, one of the most iconic moments in Doctor Who. But how many people did you think would know? I would guess, you know, no more than 10%. It depends if there's a fan that works it. If you recall when we went to the locations for survival, yes, we popped into that pub, didn't we, where um, Ace has a, has a drink. Yes, and the, right. the young barman yes. was well aware yes. of the story. And, uh, they were clearly born long after the Cold War ended. But, uh, <laughs> like every carbonite who wears horn glasses. <laughs> talking about hipsters. <laughs> Media types. Yes, yes. Who have never done a real day's work in their life. White City is thronging with them. Oh, God. Do you know, talking about locations, I've just come from White City. It's mm. um, where Ian and Barbara were. Mm. Left the time, isn't it? That's right. And it's where Television Centre is, just up the road on, mm. on Wood Lane. And you can now freely access, access Television Centre. Did you, did you park in the Horseshoe Car Park? There is no Horseshoe Car Park. That has now been re-landscaped into a dining area for a few restaurants which are now built into the building. You're shitting me. No. So, is there a blue plaque, though, saying this is the, the spot where Pat Troughton and Peter Davison met in 1981? It said just three years. <laughs> there is not. It's really upsetting. There is no Horseshoe Car Park. And even more upsetting, the, the gates at the front of the BBC, which used to have BBC Yes, yes you did. Yes, you took a photograph of me. Out those very gates. Yeah. They've gone. All of the gates have gone. The gatehouse is gone. You know, with the picture of Jimmy. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. God knows why they got rid BBC of that. Legend. <laughs> BBC Legend. BBC Legend. All of that's gone. So you can now freely cross the road and walk and touch Television Centre. You can touch TC One. Yes. And I was just looking at it, thinking, this is a shame. So I took some photographs. Mm. And this gentleman came up to me. This. What are you doing? Who was he? Uh, he was a security man, about uh, 25. Ah, right. So another one born after the end of the Cold War. Oh, totally, yeah. Mm. And he asked me what I was doing, taking pictures. And I said, oh, I just wanted to take a few shots of the BBC. And he said, well, why? He could not understand why I was taking a shot of TC1. I said, it has massive cultural significance. I wonder if he, I wonder if he knows that. Because if, he, if he's just employed for security, he may just wander around and think these are expensive flats and have absolutely no idea what it used to be. It's possible. If that's the case, that's very sad. And I, mm. <laughs> there, was a, there was a certain feeling that there was nothing about the tele television centre which was being retained as a BBC icon. All of the logos have gone, stripped from the building. Mm. I thought, surely there's a preservation order on mm. the BBC logo being retained. Not at all. So it's just television centre now. There's no branding on it. Oh God! And I just, I just felt quite sad. And all can, I was can you get, sorry. Can you get into the inside in the courtyard? Yeah, bit? you can. Yeah, I'd walk around there. Ah, that's like you know, this when Liz Sladen was introduced to the cameras. Her and John had loads of pictures taken. Are the mosaic uh, sort of tiles still there? The red mosaic tiles are still there. All of that, and the statue at the top. Yeah, all of that's still there. And it looks lovely, <clears> but it's surrounded now by uh, yummy mummies who are professional shoppers walking around ah. with their baggage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As opposed to sweaty old people like us walking around taking photos of tiled walls. Yeah. And 
old eroded doors to TC1 and TC4 which yes. Colin Baker would have walked through yes. I'm thinking they don't care no they don't they don't care mm. and I feel that's going to quickly be forgotten the iconography well the that is human nature I think so. oh maybe so maybe mm. so because we are we are in Josiah's library mm. uh, even though we're in a pub yeah. in London we haven't mentioned books yet have we and we haven't mentioned books and the book we're talking about today is it's uh, Iceberg by David Banks no, 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 you two run along. I'm going to do a spot of reading. You tell me to finish this book before we reach Bombay. Okay, so this is a, a new adventure novel, isn't it? It is, yeah. Okay. It came out in 1993, I think, it was first published in 1993. Yeah, it's, it's got... Uh, One of the happiest years of my life, I have to say. I absolutely loved 1993. Do you know, it, this is astonishing to me, because I felt the same really? in 1993. And there is an episode that we've got, which is called 1993, and it's ah. all about that year. And it was a great year. And even though Doctor Who fans that are older than us, I think Charlie will disagree, saying 1993 was a year of disappointments. Ah, yes. Uh, for no pleasing Buddy Windrush. No pleasing Buddy. He's a hard man to please, hard taskmaster. It was a great year to be a fan because Doctor Who was suddenly back on the map again. I was so happy. I was in, um, I was doing loads of Shakespeare plays. I was in ah. plays at plays at school, plays in the youth theatre in Southport Art Centre. Uh, I had friends <laughs> for the first time in my life. Uh, it was a wonderful year. It I was a it. great year for many reasons. It's the same. I agree. You know, I, I had uh, I was doing very well at school. Yeah, uh, I, was I took my. Oh no, I did. I started my GCSEs. I took them in '94. Ah, right. Okay. And on the back what were of, you doing? What, what, what was I doing? You're a bit younger than me. You'd started senior school by now. No, senior school was next year. Ah, so I was in my final year. And I was just absolutely... It was probably my most obsessive year for being a Doctor Who fan. It right. couldn't have been a better time. Yes. Imagine, listeners, that on BBC One on a Friday night, they repeated a John Pertwee story weekly, and one of them was in black and white. <laughs> now, you cannot imagine that today. It yeah. would never have got aired on no, primetime no. BBC One. Yeah. And to look back now thinking that was like a golden era for repeats. Yeah, that was, was that Planet of the Daleks? That's correct. It was one of the episodes in black and white? Yes. Yeah. I'd forgotten that. You know, now that you yeah. now that you said it, I remember. <laughs> was it episode one or three? Three. And it was introduced by Ian Levine. God. Uh, <coughs> so I remember that now. Yeah, yeah. That's I'd great. completely forgotten. I'd not thought of that for probably about how long ago was ninety three? Twenty five years. Yeah, twenty five years ago. Mm. So it's twenty five years since this book, which I have in my hand, which has the um, the logo. logo with the thirtieth anniversary. Banner. Banner. I'd like to say, if you look, look closely at the back of the book, it's slightly misaligned. It's a hmm. bit wonky, the logo, which I have issue with. Oh, right. Um, but it's a, I think it's a lovely logo. It takes me right back. Hmm. And uh, fairly recently, I dug out my um, 30th anniversary mug, didn't I, Greg? You did. And what happened? It got broke. And with that, my life <laughs> crumbled in my hands. <laughs> My 11-year-old self was in tears. Yes, yes, it was. Uh, it was like a metaphor for your life, really, wasn't it? Everything. You were feeling shattered and in pieces. It is. Ah. Ah, so we've actually relocated on location. We've had to leave the pub, Greg. Yes. Argentina are about to play a game of football, and uh, the the. Um, I think, I think there's a competition on at the moment. I think Argentina are contesting in 
Euro 96. Well, quite uh, so, yes, well, good, good luck to them, and hopefully Diego Maradona will score a hat-trick uh, with his hand and uh, put them through to the finals. Um, well, we're, we're now actually outside St Paul's on the yeah. re-sculpted steps, which no longer exist, the steps from the invasion, so we're actually now on some ramps, which have been kindly provided all the youths to skateboard the, the backwards and forwards there, there goes one oh, look, at him. Look, look at him always oh, gone over that's <laughs> his backside uh, there's yes. a whole chapter in um, Jordan Peterson's book that says um, uh, don't interrupt children when they're skateboarding oh really mm. right okay so let, let, you, let youths potentially harm themselves it'll do them more good in the long run like a, like a Darwin award so. The thing is, this guy here... He's back on his feet, you know, he's back he, on his feet now. He's, he's old enough to know better. He looks about 30. But he's yeah. behaving like... Yeah. Has he never read Proust? You know, he's wasting his time, isn't he? Yeah, he should be in search of lost time, not sitting about on a skateboard. Well, this book, Iceberg, David Banks. Yes. Let's get into it. Yes. Um, I think I suggested we read Iceberg. Am I right in saying that originally? Well, yeah, I mean, you, you, you've been mentioning it for a while, in fact. Because um, you, you had such uh, uh, strong memories of it, and, I did. but we're, we're only we're recording now. I think probably about what a fortnight after we, we spoke to David Banks. That's great. Uh, oh, you can hear St. Paul's. That's St. Paul's. Hey. Yes. Well, you, you didn't get that when the side men were marching, did we? We did get some clanging bongs when the uh, manhole covers were thrown. Yeah. Up. I, oh. It's right on three o'clock. You see. Go JNT. back to the football commentary. JNT had to put up with all of these problems. <laughs> There's a plane going overhead. We'll have to take that shot again. So I've, I've not read it uh, since 1994 when I first picked it up. Yeah. Um, and it was a very adult book when I read it because, as, yeah. as we mentioned in one of the interviews with David, effing and jeffing, effing and jeffing and scarring and harming and lots of body horror and all sorts of mm. things. It's a very, it's a very rich text, isn't it, for a Doctor Who novel? It is. It disturbed you a bit, didn't it? It did as a, as a child, because it's it's interesting because I I did buy this book in 1993 I think right, um, but I didn't read it at the time. So did Charlie. He bought it but didn't read it. At the yeah, time. and it wasn't it wasn't just how, oh I didn't read Iceberg. I didn't read most of them. I, I sort of I started buying the new adventures and I think I read about three or four, and then carried on buying them for a couple of years and then realised I hadn't actually got round to reading them because I was doing my GCSEs and A levels uh, and I had to read all kinds of. You know, like Shakespeare and all, yeah. all that that sort of stuff. Yeah. yeah, it was time. Time. Time was against me, so I didn't. I didn't read them. And then a few things happened because one of them was uh, the Doctor Who: The Monsters came out on DVD, hmm. which was uh, if you remember those old Nick Briggs um, documentaries. Yes, yeah. From back in back in the the eighties to nineties. The real-time pictures was it, or the Myth Makers? Uh, yeah, that's right. Yes, real-time pictures. Yeah, and uh, I thought I'd have a bit of that. Yeah, some interesting people on them, and they had the the I was a Doctor Who monster documentary as well. About 1995, that was produced. Was that's right. That's right. Uh, and it was uh, filmed at Riverside Studios, which yeah. I've, I've been to now because it's a theatre now. Yeah, and I've seen quite a few good shows there. Although the seats make you feel like you're watching Wimbledon helicopter going over there. Is that the Brigadier? Yeah, I was going to say it's the Brigadier. But, um, yeah, I got, I got offered an interview either with Nick Briggs or with David Banks. No question. No, exactly. So I said, uh, when will David Banks be available? Yes. Um, and I had a very good chat with him. And I thought, well, um, that seemed to go quite well. 
maybe I'll be a risk being slightly unprofessional saying by the way we also do this podcast would you mind all three uh, <laughs> um, and so um, amazingly David said yes I think partly because um, he listened to an interview with uh, Jack Claff that we did do you remember when we spoke to Jack Claff oh yes yeah yeah uh, well no he was the thing was that Roger was as a guy he was incredibly supportive there was there's one or two people he didn't like there was one oh. guy bit hairy I'm surprised of all the ones yeah. that David listened to that one swung him yeah but he knew he knew Jack from old so yeah, uh, yeah it was uh, nice to hear an old voice again so he said uh, he said he'd um, he said he'd speak to us which is really nice yeah so back to the book Greg well yeah so you've you've read it uh, as an adult with fresh eyes well yeah I mean I obviously once um, David agreed to speak to us I thought well I'm kind of need to read the book really then um, so, so I did read it, and I had it—I uh, I had it all planned out beautifully. I was going to read it on a, a work trip to Cardiff, yeah, because I had time on my own in the, in the train. Um, and I got uh, got about a hundred pages in on the way, <laughs> and then on the way back, uh, I ended up having to sit next to my boss, which was which was good in the end because you know we had a good chat on that. Mm. Um, but I didn't get to read any more of the book. But it was one of those things where I, I was sort of slightly worried I'd go into it and have to review it and not like it. Right. Uh, so, you know, at the back of my mind, there's always... It's like when you go and review a show and you know someone in the production and you're sort of, you, you have that sort of element of anxiety. What if, what if it's a real stinker? Yeah. Um, do, I, do I give it a three stars or... Uh, or decline to review. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yes. I, I had all those kinds of anxieties going into it but then I started reading it and um, those anxieties dissipated really because I, I, I really really enjoyed it it's a very good um, story yeah but it's a bit more than that isn't it, it it's more it's more than just plot there's a lot going on in here it's a lot of themes and ideas and um, beautifully written uh, language and dialogue in the book and my memory, my abiding memory of it, compared to the target novelizations at the time, which really do rip through the stories at a tremendous pace. Mm. Very exciting adventure novels. This is more of an odyssey. The door creaked almost shut behind him. Only a narrow beam of light cut through the room and outlined the contours of an ancient console in the centre. There was a tickle in the doctor's nose. He pulled out his handkerchief and sneezed explosively. A shower of dust particles whirled and floated gently downwards in the beam of light, like a snowstorm in a paperweight. He tucked his handkerchief back in his pocket. Block the openings. Shut the doors. He reached out behind him. The chink of light was snuffed out. Total blackness. There was so much in his head... He had to simplify, to dwindle, reduce, dissolve, return to nothing, return to the place from which he could start again. His feet were hot from walking. He sat on the floor in the darkness and lay his umbrella to one side. He removed his hat. He undid his shoelaces and pulled off his shoes and socks. He massaged his toes and rubbed the soles. 
it felt good. He replaced his hat and stood. He enjoyed the feel of the cool jade floor, its smooth solidity. By degrees, his breathing became slow and deep. A journey of a thousand years begins beneath one's feet. However, what's fascinating about the book is it really takes its time to actually get the Doctor on board. Yes, it does actually. Yes, which is quite jarring for uh, a fan expecting Doctor Who to be on page one. Yeah, but I think they they've begun to go that way with the character of the Seventh Doctor, haven't they? Mm. That he was more of a like a Merlin character. Yes, yes. Uh, explicitly in Battlefield. On screen, of course, he was always the the main character. They couldn't sort of you know do whole episodes without Doctor Who being in it. Yes, yeah. I think I think I'm not sure audience would accept that. But but when you when you're doing it in a book form, you can hold the Doctor back. Yeah, um, and he becomes this kind of mis- he's more mysterious, isn't he? Yes, he is. Um, and I don't think he appears until about 100, page one hundred and fifty. Yeah, it's probably well, it's probably about halfway through, I yeah. think. Yeah, so it must be round about then. Um, but it's um, it's sort of okay because there's, there's there's lots of characters in it. I mean, the main character is um, Ruby. Yeah, young lady. Mm. Who I think is very well sketched out mm, very well developed yeah yeah almost she's a um, journalist investigative journalist isn't she but she's undercover almost feels like a prototype companion being developed yes it's as if she could go elsewhere yes these, these adventures could have spun off into something else now we had all those things like what was it called the Bernie Summerfield adventures yeah and whatnot. Ace, Ace isn't in it at all I don't know where she'd gone by then and they don't, don't Doctor Who doesn't seem to have any companions in it what's the name of this beta TARDIS which is on the cover it's, it's, a, it's a form of the police box which is uh, a meditative version of the police box. Yes, it's like one of those little Chinese... Um, uh, Pagolas. Well, that's it, yes. yes. Pagoda, yes. It, 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 yes. I think what's happened is uh, Doctor Who has stepped out of his normal uh, number of stories with Ace. I'm going to have a, a bit of a sidetrack and have a bit of time out to myself. And yes. these, are, these are the stories which take place ah. when... Uh, Doctor Number Seven steps out of his own timeline for a few stories. Yeah, which is why he has no attachments whatsoever. It's supposed to be in a meditative state, isn't he? Yeah, uh, in this story. So that's why he has no ties and no baggage, which is actually quite liberating for Sylvester's Doctor. Yeah, as much as I like Ace, it's lovely to see him working on his own and being quite quiet. And it allows the the new characters in the book to breathe and have a bit more attention. Yes, yeah, so, no, particularly I Ruby. Yeah. I, I thought that. I, I thought, um, but I could hear Sylvester McCoy in the, the the lines of dialogue. Though I thought it was a very, yes. very obviously. Um, so I mean, we're both very big fans of uh, Sylvester, aren't we? And, yeah. Uh, as is as is uh, as is as is Tom, who's uh, <laughs> uh, not so no much longer, Buddy Windrush. Uh, yes, Buddy Windrush is a bit of an anomaly because Doctor, of course, is an acting part. Now, who said that? Um, <laughs> Doctor Who. The character obviously changes every time a new actor takes on the role. He doesn't play it as a straight role, Doctor Who's character, persona, everything about him changes. And what I really like about not just McCoy's performance, but the character he created in the name of Doctor Who, which then comes across in the new adventures, yes. is actually a very good character. Mm. Um, I'd say that Peter Davison's um, Doctor Who, whilst an entertaining TV uh, character, uh, a yes. good cipher, is a very unrewarding uh, character in novel form yes. and Sylvester McCoy's works particularly well because it's so rich and deep and interesting 
yeah, it, it becomes sort of more meditative, yeah. meditative. Yeah. And um, there's, there's elements. I mean, I I feel really, really out of my depth on this, and I I sort of I, I almost wondered to ask David Banks about it when, when we were talking to him. But um, there's elements of Taoism and Eastern mm. mythology and um, spiritualism. Uh, and ideas of Eastern philosophy that I have to say I know nothing about. I mean, I don't know if you do you know anything about this this sort of thing. Um, I recall um, about 15 years ago there being a book of essays about religion, and David Banks was in that. Book. Oh, really? And it was a book lent to me by a friend of mine that worked in in the Waterstones, and he wrote about his relationship with Christianity and then I Ching. Right. That's my memory right. of it. Um, mm. So I, obviously, David has spent some time considering concepts yeah. of religion and theology uh, and uh, ways of thinking and philosophy I before think, approaching this book. There is no doubt about. That. Well, I thought it had to be that because there's there's so much in it, and it's um, the, the characters are kind of uh, steeped in, in this kind of uh, Eastern mm. philosophical ideas or spiritual ideas. Um, don't really want to say too much because I'm very out of my depth on this, but I, I did sort of feel there was a lot of background. What was the name of the book? Do you remember the? the, the I think it was something along the lines of Journeys into Something, and mm. these are all uh, a cross section of artists, um, thinkers, and David was obviously approached by the editor mm. to provide a piece for good reason. Um, and I was absolutely stunned to see David Banks uh, <laughs> writing this piece. But then mm. I thought, no, actually, he's a writer. <laughs> yeah. So I shouldn't be yeah, surprised. Yeah. But it's just the, yeah. obviously, if, you know, my, my go to with David Banks is the cyber leader. I don't mind That's admitting right. well, that. Well, I'll be honest. think of him know. as an actor. <laughs> uh, yeah. we, we forget um, that people can do other things. Um, and that's something he mentioned in his yes. interview, didn't he? It's like it's, yes. it's, people can't really adjust to the fact that somebody who is one, one moment trussed up in latex and fiberglass can yes. then have a novel in them. <laughs> But of that's course right. they can. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> These are creative people with ideas. Yes. And that's, I think, one thing about this book is it's, it is a book of ideas, which yes. is very exciting. Uh, is, but but hu- uh, massively yeah. high-concept ideas, some of them. Absolutely. Really, really good ideas. I, you know, I don't want to um, cut any of this if I'm retreading stuff we did in the interview, but I was really impressed with some of the very high-concept ideas that were well ahead of their time. I mean, for example, um, Ruby has a nanocom doesn't she? Yes. And I was reading that through 2018 eyes, uh, immediately imagining her in my mind's eye uh, <laughs> as having a, an eye, whipping out her iPhone and, yeah. you know, checking checking Facebook or her social media or, um, and she, it, it's voice activated. So she, she's, um, she, she says, hey, Nanocom or whatever. And it's like, yeah. I was like, it's Siri. It's Siri, yeah. 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 Uh, oh, hi, hi, Siri here. What, 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 what do you want? Uh, David's kind of definitely done his research with uh, future technology. And it, it can I just ask which year is it setting? Can you write? Is it, is it, it 2015? 2006. It's set. Is it 2006? 2006. And the when did the iPhone come out? 2007. Well done, the first David. IPhone. So it's like, it yeah. was like really cock on. With the headset and control gloves in place, you could choose to pilot a fighter plane or drive a tank through Brooklyn. Or you might find yourself in some dark labyrinth, laser weapon in hand, picking off hordes of nasty aliens that were always creeping up on you. But Ruby preferred the lucid dreaming. Selecting the lucid dreaming mode, she would suddenly be soaring miles above an incredible tectonic landscape, painted in sparkling blues and gorgeous reds, awesome yellows and soothing greens. The magical kingdom of cyberspace. 
She drifted above a fantasy world of infinite discovery. She would swoop down to explore the detail of the landscape, and the terrain would swirl up to her and open like a flower. There would be rocky canyons to examine, or shimmering rivers to follow to their source, or new uncharted seas. Those 15-minute sessions never seemed enough, but it was all that was allowed by medical decree. The World Health Organization guidelines for avoidance of mental impairment were displayed in large letters on the side of the real machine. Ruby could understand why. She found it incredibly addictive. Somebody had recently condemned it as yet another glitch switch for the mind. They might be right. Cyberspace was dangerous. That was part of the fun. But I imagine, because I didn't read it in 1993, so if I'd read it then, would I have been thinking this is far-fetched technology that's just never going to happen? But when you read it now, it's like, yeah, that's as a a depiction of the near future, that's really cock-on. Yeah. Um, It's actually now a depiction of the recent past. Yeah, true. (laughs) A decade ago. Yeah. Yeah, And he's he's got so much of it right. I mean, one thing that really struck me, and I did mention it with the interview, so I won't go into too much detail, was this plague, which is referenced quite a few times. And it's obviously AIDS. Um, Well, you say it's obvious. I mean, I, I didn't pick up on that. At the time, in you know, 1993, the cocktail had not been delivered to yeah. save people's lives. This is the th- we do live in an interesting time now where we're talking about stuff when we were kids, where everything has changed in 25 years in terms of yes. AIDS being the threat that it, w- that it was. Yes. And I think David was for forecasting, really, the potential end of the human race. Well, due to AIDS and the Cybermen being the surviving force because yeah. they don't need to defeat human beings they've defeated themselves through sex and emotions yes yes and they are quite sexless aren't they yeah it? yeah you know, he, he did I remember him commenting saying it was sensitive of you to pick that up because I hadn't at all um, yeah but they're explicitly sort of sexless aren't they in, in, the, in the book absolutely uh, yeah. the genitals have been removed and um, uh, yeah, it's and one way to cure AIDS is to stop people having sex. <coughs> well, that's it right. It will kill itself out. And yeah. If it's just about propagation of new life, you do not need genitals to do that. You yeah. just need the appropriate cells. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's quite horrific. Concept. All, all the raw materials, the the, 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 the meat, the, the protein, or whatever the yeah. uh, uh, that you build the Cyberman around. Yeah. Uh, so there are all those concepts as well, and also. Um, more presciently I think even than that that like everyone is talking about this shit now you know um, it's not really shit but like environmental stuff Mm. and I think like David Attenborough did that documentary with the um, turtle with a straw and a bit of the plastic bags in the the ocean like all of a sudden like everyone is talking about this yes all the kids at school are talking about it all the the 10 year olds are really into this sort of environmental stuff and there's a lot of that in the book as well. Do you get the impression, and this is not a criticism, but I think we'd all have this. I think I'm right in saying this is David's first novel. I'll be corrected if, if it isn't. But he's got taken the opportunity to write the novel that was always in him with all yeah. of these ideas. There are so many ideas in it. And it's so rich, which is why I think I will go down and back and read it now. The reason I didn't read it for the sake of this review is I didn't want to actually have my memory shifted my, yeah. well, my memories are, are from an 11 year old yes. of this being a very adult text with some very gritty language <laughs> with some sprawling chapters which are epic and very rich in detail and I remember thinking 
when's Doctor Who going to shoot a Cyberman? Um, <laughs> but that's really good yeah. because I stuck with it. It wasn't boring me. I was actually getting invested in the characters. And I think that's it was it. a real turning point for me as like a 10, 11 year old oh, reading yeah, this. Yeah. Thinking novels, particularly Doctor Who books, don't need to be about running around. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I remember so well a conversation between the artist. Is his name Straker? Uh, no, Brack is the art- Brack. artist. Brack. Straker is Lord Straker is the chap who's running the, the whole operation right, okay. and also owns the magazine that um, Ruby uh, works for right okay and so Brack is the guy that's he's like a modern goth I suppose today going back he's like a Damien Hirst type isn't he that's it and I remember he was introduced me to the concept of uh, absinthe which I didn't know yeah, at the time right, yeah, okay. and there's a line in it I think it was is it absinthe makes the heart grow <laughs> fonder I thought, oh, this is clever stuff. <laughs> There's some wonderful fun to this. There's a bit where the Seventh Doctor's called like the Royal Real McCoy. Or something. Yes. I thought that was, that's a nice little nod. And a uh, bug crawling across a screen, I think, is one of the first little puns because, of course. Is David talking about a bug in a program or an yeah, insect? Right. And there's so many little details, and it's very yeah. playful like that. And I think yeah. this really feels like a novel that's been gestating for years yes. and ideas, and he's finally man- managed to get them on the page and get it published. And I think there yeah. was probably a feeling I might only have the opportunity to write one book. Yeah. Some people don't even get the opportunity to write one article in their lifetime and get well, it published. Well, true, yeah. So we're, we're, we, we uh, yes. Little did we know that David also, you know, he did uh, the Cybermen book five years before this, but that was more of an analysis of history and production. Yes, this it's really non- non-fiction, is, isn't it? But this is a this this is a yarn. This is a proper novel, and you know, know, you could actually take the whole Doctor Who concept out of it and yeah. uh, read it on its uh, standalone merits. But all kinds of things uh, picked up with me, like I was saying about the the environmental stuff, and I think we mentioned in the interview, you know, the the bits where you've got this guy Brack, who's this. Uh, artist with uh, with, a, with a dark history behind him, yeah. and he's forever worried that that's going to come back and bite him. And you, you look at figures in the public eye now, where a particular type of transgression can end careers and so on. Oh, absolutely, um, yeah. But his whole shtick is is carving people's faces <laughs> out of icebergs, and you think just how disastrous that would be for the environment. There's, there's this whole Gaia thing in it. Yeah. Um, and, of course, I first heard of Gaia um, watching the 1985 BBC serial Edge of Darkness that I may occasionally <laughs> bang on about in this, uh, in this podcast. But yes. uh, that's the, the Gaia concept is, is central to that. So uh, it was nice to see it again in this book. And also, when I was reading it, I found it hugely nostalgic as well. Yeah. I remembered why I used to like reading Doctor Who stories yes. and got through all the Target novelizations. But like you were saying, it wasn't just running around. It was lots of ideas that are important to me, sort of explored in uh, book form as well. It is a great piece of work. And I, I, I definitely say, if you're a, a, a Doctor Who fan or if you're interested in Doctor Who and want to start picking up novels, this is definitely one to go to. It's, it, it, ra- it really does set the bar. Um, it, I think how many Doctor Who books are there? There's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. Oh gosh, yes. Um, if if I were to select ten or fifteen, yeah. this would definitely be in there. Yeah. It's completely different for a start from any other Doctor Who novel it's, you'll it, ever ab- pick up. Absolutely, it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. it's also written by somebody who really knows his subject. Yeah, because it still feels like Doctor Who, yes. doesn't it? Right, all the way throughout. It's it's, it's a real chunk of Doctor Who. But the Cybermen also, they're, they're taken so seriously in the book, and that's the only way you can deal with Cybermen. Mm. Um, as we've touched on before, they have been portrayed in the series, sometimes with 
slight comedic elements such as Revenge of the Cybermen. And mm. as soon as you do not take a concept seriously, you cannot accept your audience to take it seriously. Mm. And David it treats the Cybermen with absolute how can I put it? Mm. Meticulous detail in terms of body horror. Ah, which yes, you yes. can never forget what's inside a Cyberman once you've read this book. It's so chilling. It's horrific. It, it is makes you think about it. It does. It's, 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 I can still remember to this day the scene, I think, when... Is it Ruby is in the hold or the basement of the ship? Mm. And she sees a Cyberman unzip mm. his costume. Or she unzips the costume. And underneath, there's a rib cage which has been reinforced with sheets of aluminium mm. meshed in between flesh. And I thought, my God. And what a clever way of integrating a, a design issue, which they had in the 60s, ah, <laughs> into yeah, something yeah. which actually had some yeah, yeah, real exactly. value, which is they could unzip themselves. Zip, yeah. <laughs> um, which is something actually David touches on in um, his Cybermen book, which is that, in the, I think it was in the 1980s, for repeat surgeries on very uh, complex issues, right. instead of restitching, doctors were stitching in a zip, which could then be oh, opened, goodness. and then reinspected and then checked for infection before they were committing to sewing up the patient. Mm. Isn't that interesting? It makes you. Th it does make you think about the whole concept of the Cybermen. It does. It's in a much more unflinching way. I think we only really had it on screen with Morris Colburn in Attack of the Cybermen, but even yeah. then, it's it's uh, relatively safe. It's it's the darkest it got, but it didn't go far enough. And well, they couldn't have taken it any further at Saturday tea time, could they? But no. in book form, you could. I always felt there should have been a moment in Doctor Who, we never got it, where the Cyberman mask should have come off, mm. and we should have seen what was underneath. Mm. But perhaps it would have been too much. But it, it would have been it would have been the vestiges of a yeah. of a skull. Well, we had it with um, Magnus Greel. We had it with yes. Shara's Jack. Uh, it did happen occasionally, didn't it? The mask, the, liter the literal mask, would slip, and that would have been great. I think wouldn't it have been amazing if the cyber leader would have revealed his face? Mm. I wonder what David's view would have been on ah. and what it would have looked like. Yeah. Chilling. It could have been something quite compelling where one side of the face was a beautiful person. It could have been a woman. Something that David touches on in the book. Yes, yes. Imagine the cyber leader as a woman. Yes. Well, it's bits and bobs of everything, isn't it? Mm. Mm. Everything's been stripped out of our, the normal human experience and yeah. replaced. So we have a book here which is not just high on ideas, but high on concept. Yes. It really brings it together every shred of Cyberman history and concept into one book and tries to tie it together and knit it together uh, and conform it in some way. I mean, the, the detail to continuity is, is incredible in this book. Yes. And if you are an Uber fan, you will find no fault with the datelines. I, <laughs> I have no doubt that David has done his work on this. Well, there was all kinds of stuff, wasn't there, set in 1986, which is, of course, <laughs> where the 10th planet was set. That's right. And um, there's characters from the 10th planet in it. That's right, Cutler's daughter. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Pamela, is it? I think so. Yeah. And where we now have the where where we are in the invasion location, but there Isabel Watkins gets a few mentions, doesn't she? And is it uh, industrial electromatics? Have I got that wrong? Uh, yeah. Um, I.e. That's that's one of the things that, that I thought was really interesting because Kevin Stoney's character, Tobias Vaughn. Mm. Um, was an agent of the Cybermen, wasn't he? He was, he was sort of half-human that gave the Cybermen their agency. That's right. And Ringway in Earthshock is human who gives them their agency. Yeah. 
Um, and I was, I, uh, throughout this book, I was, because you're meant to think it's Brack. Oh, yes. I, am I getting into spoilers? But, but um, you, you, it's sort of, there are lots of red herrings. Is it Brack? Is it Lord Straker? Because yeah. Lord Straker, I, I instantly thought, oh, is this another yeah. Tobias Vaughan type? And, uh, yeah. Um, so I, I can't really say any more without, without too many spoilers, can I? But, um, yeah, towards the... Uh, and did you, did you get what the whole thing about the flip back? About the, the mag- magnetic, magnetic core uh, of the, yeah. the planet. It, it's, a, it's a big, another big science idea that uh, yeah. David has managed to introduce into this book along with everything yeah. else. Yeah. I mean, that would be, in the, per- in the Pertwee era, the whole story would be just the flip back <laughs> and nothing <laughs> else. That's true. Yeah. Um, Bless you, David. You you were <laughs> making sure that people had to be on the ball when they were reading yes, the book. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. It, it is a potential uh, reality that uh, the magnetic force of the Earth could flip. Right. And everything could go into mayhem, tides and everything. I think that very much feels like a harking back mm. to the Kit Peddler and Jerry Davis era, like the Gravitron and controlling the yes, Earth's forces. Yes. And I think, that was, I think it was signposting But would it make us act time. differently? Potentially, well, the brain doesn't the brain work on electric electromagnetic impulses? Mm. So I suppose potentially, it does. yeah. If everything was reversed, that could have um, God knows what effects. I, I think the answer is we don't know. So it's yeah. quite an interesting idea to explore, isn't it? Well, that's why it is quite philosophical. And the, uh, in the end, of course, the the, the cyber controller um, has to, has to face his own. He's almost humanised, isn't he, in some respect? And that, yes. that seems to um, send him a bit gaga. I found that incredibly chilling, the, mm. the cyber control element and the decision that the, the largest male would be chosen to mm. be the cyber controller who happened to be a black man. Mm. Um, which I thought, again, was very interesting, which was harking back to Toberman. Oh, yes, of course. And mm. it's something of an analysis about uh, physical superiority within our own race. Yes, well, which well, is kind we of frightening. In the 1930s. Yes, mm. and I found that incredibly chilling as well, uh, that it wasn't just a random person that became, that he was selected for good reason because of his mm. strength and mm. his build um, and his superiority, which is a real good, you know, knock on the chin to white supremacists as well, I thought it was quite a good good idea. Yes. That the leader actually ends up being a black man. Yes, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. You'd never know mm. underneath the suit, but that was what was underneath. And that's the interesting thing about Cybermen. They are all pretty uniform. Even the controller is uniform to a degree to, to uh, mm. other Cybermen. But what is underneath? And yes. how much is there? Well, we were talking about the, making the analogy when we spoke about the Cybermen of, sort of comparing them less to the Nazis and more to communists. Yes, and, and I think uh, that's correct. So, Soviet communists in particular, I suppose. Mm. And, um, yeah. Uh, Stalinists, um, you must conform. You will conformity be to an ideology. You will be like, like us. Ooh. You will become like us. Mm. Um, it's an incredible maybe that's notion. Why it's chilling. I mean, the, the Daleks chilled people in the 1960s, didn't they? When people were watching that, who were in their 50s or 60s, yeah. who rem- remembered or were part of or fought in the war. Yes. And seeing the Daleks do Nazi salutes in Trafalgar Square. That's We're, a different concept, isn't it? Because the, the Daleks, um, they just threaten to exterminate you like the Nazis did. They want yeah, to eradicate yeah, yeah, yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're different, so we'll destroy you. Want to convert you. Exactly. You will be like us. You will be you, the better we version. We, we are right. This ideology is absolutely right. And yes. Everybody else must be like us. And I think that's a fate worse than death. Yeah. Is to lose your autonomy. Yeah. And feeling and emotion and mm. sense of time. Yeah. And memory. Yeah. Um, you know, a, a man is the sum of his memories. A time lord even more so. <laughs>
<laughs> I mean, there's so much in this book, and we could talk about it for hours. We probably could. Um, I I am going to review it again, and I'm going to read it again. You should read it again. Yeah. Um, I'm going to only review it on my my memory of it, and I have to give it five Tardises or five Cyberman helmets out of five mm. because it's so stuck in my mind. It definitely changed my view on many things. Particularly my interest in uh, cybernetics and biological sciences. Mm. I mean, I've always been interested in that, and I have since gone on to do research and written a, a, an unproduced but complete documentary drama about the first plastic implanted heart, uh, artificial implanted heart in Barney Class. Yes. Which was there was a whole debate about altruism and how he gave himself over for this great test to be a pioneer. He effectively was a cyberman. Yeah, he he decided to put himself into this program, thinking he'd benefit mankind. Oh yes, all intentions start good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he wrote to how to it was paid with good intentions. But look at the Bolshevik Revolution. You know that that is that metaphor writ large. If you look at the history of that, that is a side man in a nutshell. It is, it is, isn't it? Yeah, they are well intentioned, but yeah. they don't realise they become monsters in the yeah. process and lost the very thing that they should have kept a hold of but yeah but all of this is in this book and I I think because I'm an awkward bastard um, uh, and also because it's probably because I'm just a little bit thick and don't um, I'm not as well read as I should be about various concepts especially about things like eastern mythology some areas I'm quite well read and there are other areas where there are huge gaps in my knowledge so I think, um, especially as things were coming to a conclusion, I wasn't. Or I had to pay really close attention, which is not a criticism of the writer; it's a criticism of the reader. Mm. Um, but I think I would give it uh, four Tardises, or four and a four point five Tardis. Can I have half a? Uh, Tom's fuck it. Tom's not here. I'll have a half a Tardis. <laughs> You're allowed to have half a Tardis. I'm going to give it four point five. But you know, I, I four point five pergolas. Yes, exactly. But I was, I was reading it, and I was remembering why I used to love reading Doctor Who stories. And, um, and it, was, it was good, because I thought, there's so much to talk about. Really. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we actually um, we speak to David about it, which we did, and um, so much to discuss. And there was a really, there's a really good cover as well, isn't there, which is Andrew Skilleter. Is it an Andrew Skilleter cover? It is an Andrew Skilleter. Now, of course, he has a, a long working relationship with Andrew Skilleter, because... Um, I mean, we have touched on the Cybermen book, haven't we, in yeah. previous episodes? The, the, the 1988. The must-have mm. large-format coffee book, which mm. is a glorious collection of illustrations, photographs, behind-the-scenes trivia, and also a whole history of cybernetics and the Cybermen knitted together. It's a real must-have book. Mm. It's, uh, it's the whole mythos of the, the Cybermen, isn't it? It's all put together in book form. It is. And that was illustrated by Andrew Skillisser. It was, as Who well. has done the cover for Iceberg, which is a picture of Ruby. And am I right in saying, is that a, a, a hand of a Cyberman yes. from the uh, Wheel in Space era? Uh, I think it is. They're 14 Cybermen, aren't they? Or, or, no, am I, am I wrong about this? Am I getting, am I getting mixed up? Because there's a couple of different types of Cybermen. There are. There, aren't there? There, there's a real mashup of all different models. It keeps I think you on your toes. I think, a lot of detail. I think I'm right in saying that hand looks very familiar to be um, as a moon, ba- uh, a wheel in space model. But maybe, maybe somebody could write in and correct us ah. on that. Well, yes. But it's a very evocative picture. I mean, Ruby there, she's on the verge of tears, isn't she? Yeah. Um, she is. And uh, the, 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 the ending. Ah, oh, I shouldn't really say any more. But the, 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 oh, 
it's a good ending oh. I think that's all we'll say mm. yeah and it's a proper ending it's a, it feels like a novel's ending it yeah. doesn't feel and then Doctor Who got in the TARDIS with a wheezing groaning sound mm. there's a bit more to it isn't there yes yeah. and it's a wonderful analogy of um, the Wizard of Oz which uh, runs right throughout the book as well which is another thing we didn't mention the Tin Man yeah without the heart the ruby the ruby slippers that's it the, um, she's watching the Wizard of Oz at some point yeah there's so much in it but um, yeah you know, I, did, I didn't see The Wizard of Oz until I was into my 30s. Yeah, it's an interesting film. It's bizarre. It's, some, some of it's horrific with the flying monkeys. Yeah. And, f- yeah. and the flames. <laughs> yeah. see it now in my mind's eye. Grizzly. But David, um, uh, after we spoke to me, he um, emailed and said um, uh, about his collaboration with Andrew Skilleter. Right. He said, I'm sorry to realise I didn't mention Andrew in our chat. Though you, can't, you can never mention everything, can you? That's, that's the thing. But he said, though he is a major figure in the Doctor Who world, and specifically for me, a good friend and work colleague in the years since I met him at Panopticon 6 in 1985. Gosh, right, OK. I wonder if Buddy Windrush was there. Yes, well, Buddy would have been about 25 then, wouldn't he? Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> 39. <laughs> <laughs> uh, not least with the creation of the, the, the Cybermen book, the, the 1988 Cybermen book. Yeah, right. I think he should... I should, David says, I should really have plugged the new work he's doing with Who Dares Publishing, especially the Doctor Omega Chronicles. Ah, yes. So I did say we would give that a mention. So as we're walking down Knight Rider Street, which is... Uh, the literally f- where the Cybermen were the in Cyber. 1968. That's right. They were in 1968. Um, what I said to David was that I think... I didn't say that Iceberg couldn't be published today. Mm. What I said was I, I'm not sure people would be as receptive to its detail mm. because people are expecting a very straightforward runaround. Doctor Who has become that. Or it's become incredibly complex without any meaning behind it. Yes, we all know the new series is rubbish, but... Um, I'd like to think there is a portion of fans that would still be interested in this kind of content um, and when you're reading something like Iceberg you're really mm. one step away well you're really reading real fiction yeah and that's the difference and if you don't like reading real fiction and you just rather read formula Iceberg will not be for you because it, mm. ma- it makes you think and it yeah. asks you too many questions and that was the point I was trying to make and Doctor Who in the early 90s the books they were writing they were quite experimental books yeah. and a lot of those writers have gone on to be very very successful yeah, yeah. Um, writers of all sorts of fiction and books and David himself has gone on to do many other things but you, you, you've got um you know, it's like uh, like with Edge of Darkness. There's all these deep ideas going on, but it's a cracking good story as well. You can yeah. you can have the penny and the bun sometimes. Yes, you can. You can have the penny and the bun. You are authorised to use the mind probe. What? The mind probe. No, not the mind probe. My first car, my little Morris Minor. Um, you know, I called it Ulysses. <laughs> good name. Yeah, yeah I thought. <laughs> way. But we do that, don't we? And, yeah. and in yeah, order yeah. to, and, or even to our, our devices, it'll work. Oh, yeah, yeah. Ruby, he's called Nanocom, but she just calls it Nano. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah, it, yeah. it becomes a companion. Uh, so we, you know, uh, and it doesn't take much for us to think that, that, that the computer we're using is either, you know, helping us or hindering us. Yes. A number of times I shout at my laptop yes. when it doesn't do what it's meant to do. Um, yes. As if, it's, as if mean, it's not printing something out just to yeah. annoy me. Uh, <laughs> it's not, not that I'm completely thick about these things and can't figure out how to work the printer. It's, <laughs> it's me who ends up shouting at the machine. So, yeah. It's remarkable. Laptops do have a personality. There's no doubt yeah. about it. Well, uh, 
And I was just wondering, going back to the the book you're saying you're writing about the cyber leader is yeah, it's it's partly it's it's in the writing stage, uh, but the mm. the first part is written. The last part is more or less there, which is Ultimate Adventure. It's a bit of a cheap Ultimate Adventure because I didn't play Simon in that, but mm-hmm. but um, I knew people who did. And it's it basically it's it's I suppose my connection with eighties Cybermen. Right. Um, you call them Cyber eighties, I think the Cyber eighties <laughs> when, when you're writing about it. And then I thought, oh, are those are those Cybermen who come into the new series the, um, the Cybernauties? Mm. And I thought, <laughs> how naughty can a Cyberman get? <laughs> <laughs> um, just with regard to Iceberg again, uh, there's a, um, a convention happening on, on the Elysium uh, during the story. Was that a reference directly to the uh, Harwich to Hook of Holland convention uh, on the ferry that you were on? Because I was there on, on the occasion. Oh. <laughs> you get all the references, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Um, I thought I thought everybody would have forgotten about that. Oh, well, that was no. something like 80, 80, when was that? 87, 87. Goodness 87, me. Yeah. How can you forget that? It was so memorable. <laughs> Very weird. <laughs> Well, you know, it was that that maybe I think it was the first time I saw cabins. Uh, you know, saw a, a, a kind of. I've been on that trip since, but it it brought me back. I w- went on it a few years ago, and um, you know, then I I suppose I was thinking, well, you know, if the ship went down, you wouldn't stand much of a chance. But it was those little cabins, and yeah. so Ruby gets one of those little cabins, the kind that I had, um, and. And so that was the germ of the idea. I, I did do quite a lot of reading about because they've they become a vogue for cruise ships as well. Mm. And you know, you'd read how many people were going on them. And and also, I knew acting active friends who went and did you know the thing. And the, Diana, the singer, mm. was sort of based on a, on a quite a, a good friend of mine who was who was a singer. And uh, and uh, um, so you know that was written. From my experience as, a, as an actor, um, mm. so yeah, yeah, big tick. Very good spot. <laughs> Very. Yeah. But I just wanted to get back to this thing of detail, mm. just finally about about because it, it it brings in this notion of time. Uh, you know, mm. basically, people are coming back to the idea that you know time is is a is subjective. There is an objective time, and that. And that physicists have have kind of got kind of got sewn up, but there's this odd thing about the times arrow, which is to do with the second law of thermodynamics, and mm. you know why is it that there's just this one time when when, when time can only be seen as going in one direction, yeah. and that's what we experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, um, although it seems to us that we have good knowledge of where we've come from in terms of time, our past, mm. and we have no knowledge or patch knowledge or you know of, of our future we do have this emotional sense of of our of our past and of our anticipations mm. but the emotional sense of our past is incomplete and un, uh, not necessarily you know if you if one was able to tie it up with cast iron um, accurate records or whatever video or 
note uh, of that past, you'd see that our memory of it, what emotionally we, we think of as ourselves and as our re, uh, connections with other people, they're not quite as we remember it. Mm, and yeah. that's, this has happened to me in two cases just now. So mem the memoir of the side, I went back to notes that I took very close to the time, and I wrote, which I wrote up for a magazine, Cyber Zone, I think it was called. And, and then so I, and I ex have expanded that mm. um, for the first chapter of, this, of these memoirs. They're very detailed, and many of, uh, many of those details I would have misremembered or not remembered at all. Mm. Um, so, so that's an interesting aspect of things. But it's, it's to do with the fact that records were taken and I could be taken back and, and facts, details that I would not have remembered, I do remember, you know, I can get back to them. And the same thing has happened with this book, I think I mentioned to you, Greg, mm. in our earlier conversation a few weeks ago about mm. um, Canary Wharf, so Canary Wharf. That's right, yes, and, you had yeah. diaries at the time, if I remember. Sorry, what? You, you kept diaries whilst you were making it. At the I time. did, and I tended to, you know, because I, I thought it was such an extraordinary thing that, mm. you know, the first cable television, the newspaper empire, um, mm. which was the Daily which was the Mirror, Mirror Group, Daily Mirror, Sunday Mirror, and all of that, and the opening, and, you know, after whopping, taking on new technology. Printing and, and and the journalists themselves having to do their own copy, so it went straight rather than being cast in iron in, in steel. Um, and they wanted to create a, a soap, TV soap, a racing mm. TV soap. And mm. I thought, you know, I thought, well, I've got to start recording this if I can, if I can find time. And I did for six months, and 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 I made it into a kind of book. Um, this is 22 years ago. Uh, over a couple of years, I sort of shaped it in the book. And then, format, I forgot about it a bit, formats changed, you know, because, uh, I, it was written in Apple Works. I, I'm pretty good at computers, but I, and some of the files I didn't, in time, uh, convert. Mm. And I said, you know, about five years later, I thought, I don't seem to be able to get at this diary that I spent so much time on. What's happening? Our signal is being jammed. More power. And it was only last, a few months ago in March, um, when I was going through seeing what I could get rid of. And I thought, and I found this thing which would seem to be unreadable on the back. Mm. And I thought, well, you know, given what expertise I've got now, I thought, I'm going to try and get into that. I got into it. Hmm. So there was this detailed you know, day-by-day day account, which I would write down, if possible, um, the, you know, coming home from having worked. So, and I, I was intent on making it as accurate as possible, as funny as possible as well, but as accurate as possible. And, uh, and also to, to comment on the things I, I was going through. It's unlike anything else you do as an actor, because you are living that soap. You know what your past as a character is. You don't know what your future as a character is, mm -hmm. and it's very close to what we experience mm -hmm. in time. Yeah. Uh, and our present is being there in front of the camera, yeah. <laughs> living the life. Mm -hmm. um, so that was one. Of, that's the, one of the themes of the book. But the point about this and the members of the side leader is that being taken back in time. And this we haven't discussed it, but this is this where time travel exists, at least for the past, that if we have a book, if we have Iceberg, 
if we have my a year on Canary, Canary Wharf, mm. we can go back and we can go to different parts of that book. And we are traveling in time, backwards and forwards. Yeah. We read something at the end, we think, oh, does that fit in with something at the beginning? Yeah. Yeah. We, we read it again and think, oh, that fits in with something right at the end. Mm. This is, this is a, an emotional uh, representation of the f- what physicists now are pretty sure about, which they call the block universe. And that is a space-time construction, as it were, or a, an artifact, which it, which it is posited that every moment that we live, all of us live, are somewhere in that block universe. And presumably, I wonder if you agree with me, this somehow, though we don't know the technology that's doing it, the details of it, this is what the doctor is doing and taking in this box that Ruby discovers and thinks she must be with a madman. Every companion thinks this. Mm, In this box, you go into a box like a lift uh, and as a dog might think, you go to the seventh floor, the dog, he doesn't, how is he on this center? All the smells are different. Mm. For us, you go and suddenly you get yourself into ice, uh, into uh, Antarctica or a different age, different planet or whatever. He's doing. He has got the technology to move about to different places on a in a block universe. Is that your understanding of how the TARDIS moves? It's like, it strikes me as like a technological version of taking um, like why the written record and people writing things is so important. So you can go and read Thucydides' history of the Peloponnesian War <laughs> or something like something that was written thousands of years ago. <laughs> Yeah, as you do, yeah. <laughs> the obvious choice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's always my go-to. Um, uh, <laughs> sorry, classicist. Um, but, uh, you know, and you, you can read about things that, I mean, not verbatim, but things people said thousands of years ago, experiences they have had, yeah. their, their ordinary lives. Or like the recent um, unearthing of Pompeii. Sorry, my class, inner classicist coming out again. But uh, you, you find people who died in 79... AD or BC was it and um, still where they were decapitated mm. over 2,000 years ago and you start to think they had a life yeah, yeah. So they, they weren't keen on this idea of a great big rock severing their head from their body 2,000 years ago I wonder what they were thinking what the trauma that they were going through and so yeah. on yeah um, we, we just had that in Guatemala in, in yeah that too yeah yeah sure so, yeah, yeah. I think it's just that people like to revisit things and to revisit a point in time is probably something that most people would like to do because they'd like to do things differently as well. And I think that's the the fascination with the Doctor Who concept is that you can actually change things, you can revisit things and time is the one thing that people don't have any control over. Ah, but the Doctor still has so much baggage though, doesn't he? (laughs) This is true. Baggage. He can can go and change things, but he has personal baggage. Emotional baggage. Emotional baggage. Yeah. Emotional, but mm. can he change? Things? Not allowed mm. to. Not one no. line. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but he has. I mean, I mean, if you think of it as block universe, if you think of it as everything is fixed, uh, you know, we, uh, the fact that we don't know the future doesn't mean that it's, you know, because there was this big argument of determinacy or indeterminacy mm. in the future, and and it, you know, the block argument says, well, it's indeterminate for us, but it's it's determinable. And, and and it exists, and so we're all of us just you know moving to through through it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
from the point of view, Sam, your point about, you know, this is a fantasy for us, we, you know, and really nice to be able to go to a particular time um, uh, and experience that or see what could be changed about that. In term, what I was wondering was in terms of the mechanics, as it were, of the, of, uh, of the TARDIS. Has it even been hinted at? It's, it's often been avoided. And for, for a television programme based on time travel, the classic series doesn't do many time travel stories. It's normally just a, a literal literary vehicle to get them into yeah. a scenario exactly yeah. to tell a new story. I think it's only in the more recent material, which I'm not very familiar with, where they actually start playing with time itself as a concept. Yeah, yeah. which is why it's become so confusing. I, I, I think yes. it is confusing. Yes, I, I agree entirely. Yeah, mm. yeah. It's described as timey wimey by Stephen Moffat. <laughs> Bad science. Backwards and forwards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think that I think that is a bit of a cheat. I think if you're going to deal with uh, science fiction, you have to base it on some kind of scientific fact or research. And that's one of the reasons I'm not very engaged with the new material because it doesn't seem to be. Speculative fiction. It just seems to be really fantasy, which I find quite difficult to get on board with. Yes, I think that's a tremendously good point uh, because uh, certain things I was really impressed by with Age of Steel, uh, the, the first new Cybermen. Mm -hmm. But the fact that they placed it in an alternative yeah. universe mm. is is just like saying, "Oh, they dreamt it and then they woke up." Yes. It's that kind of letdown. Yeah, there's not much peril, is there? Really, mm. if it's yeah. Anything can happen, yeah. and it has no consequences. Yeah, exactly. And, and, yeah. and true science fiction is, you know, and I hope Iceberg, you know, has, has does this to some extent. It is about now. It's about our problems. It's about possible mm. solutions mm. And, yeah. and, and real nightmares. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It has a lot of John Wyndham influences, doesn't it? It does feel like some of the John Winder books I was reading at the same time in that it's all it's all inferred by science it's you're chasing lines forward and it, Greg was touching on this before we spoke actually about how much of it's quite prescient oh yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah in yeah, terms very, of what you forecast yeah, it's, well I, I very, you know, John Winder was, was tremendous and I, I read him you know when I I got into science fiction when I I was about 10, 11 John Wyndham there's a particular thing about this dystopian view mm -hmm. um, and, and I I do get Ruby to refer to it um, this idea you know, she suddenly thinks well a world with no people in it wouldn't that be mm. fine that's really what John Wyndham and the mm. dystopian view starts to get at mm. you take away all the trappings that seem to be so complicated and complicate our lives there is a kind of freedom in that um, and you know again and again we come back to this the, 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 the idea that we um, we can benefit from all those things that society, material society, leaves for us, but there are hardly any people to, 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 to use them, so they're mm. there for our benefit. Uh, is uh, there another novel in you then, David, do you think? Do you think there, there might be another book at some point in the future that you might write? I, I mean, I am writing, obviously, I, you know, I've, got, I, I've got several projects on the go, mm. and, uh, uh, but in terms of a real novel or a science fiction novel, yes, I, when I've written this and it's come out and, and I found that I could, and I set myself six months to write it, I actually, you know, did get it done. I had a, a, an acting role during it, so, you know, I got it done within that six months. That's very um, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> no, I, know, I, I, I met a um, famous writer at the time, um, and, uh, and, and he was... Uh, 
yeah, he was struggling with his book, and he'd, he'd got he'd got twenty thousand words or something. And I said, "Oh yeah, I'm, I'm fifty five thousand into mine, and I've got you know, I've got to finish it by November. Or something. I've got to get that. Well, how, how many? I don't know, hundred eighty thousand." And uh, and he was just, but you see, we, I had plotted, I had to plot it out. I wasn't oh. intending to really. Yeah. Um, and so that that stricture of having uh, the 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 the, the, the storyline plotted out, mm. I thought was going to be getting was going to get in the way. Actually, it's very interesting how even though you've got that, you you know you're surprised by your characters, you're surprised yeah. mm. by what. To get back to your question, um, uh, after it came out, I thought I could write a whole series with Ruby in it. Yeah. I, I hope I'll be. A, I, I'm, I'm working on on a new Doctor Who adventure, which um, oh. may be possible. Maybe coming out in some form or other. I can't really say. But um, right. so that, but that, that is the Doctor Who side. But I think if I did um, <clears throat> set out to write a real novel, I would I would take it away from that completely. Partly because it's so restrictive in terms of copyright. Yes. Yeah. Better to have my own um, invention. And dare I say, David, uh, the audience has changed a lot now, and uh, I'm not sure novels like Iceberg would be able to be commissioned now because the new adventures are, are quite strong and racy and experimental and i think the publishing house now is a much safer ground very much more formulaic for a, a much broader audience really i sense that i mean I, I, you know i sense that um, there's a lot of control mm. and uh, but even the idea of you know writing something spending all that much time doing mm. it um, and then having to set it i mean you're you're canary, on canary wharf for example um, it's very interesting to the people who are in it, and we're going to have a reunion. You know, that's oh, going to be interesting uh, in, a, in a few weeks' time. Ah. Um, and I'm sending it to those people, right. and they are saying, you know, I, I don't remember half of this. And, you know, <laughs> didn't really say darling that much. And, <laughs> um, and I can categorically say that, you know, that, that, that it happened. I was just putting down what was happening. Mm. But, but, um, but, uh, can I sell it? Can I? Can it be published? It would be interesting. You know, it's it's mm. definitely oral history. Yeah, mm. it would be interesting to certain people. If you want to get something published, it has to be either you know the the, the narrow kind of absolute literate thing. You know, uh, mm. that is purely that. I suppose in terms of science fiction, you know, that there is an audience for that. Go back to the to Kit Pedler. Mm. And Jerry Davis, who was the the, the real the writer, the dramatist, but but mm. Kit Pedler, who had that experience, who was a scientist, and you know was asked by the BBC to bring some science into this. He he mm. brought cybernetics, and he brought the emotional memory of being very ill, going to hospital, and being treated by people who could have been robots. That's mm. very interesting, mm. um, yes. because they didn't have uh, the. The, the sympathy, the compassion. Mm, yes. Uh, um, the what? What? Yeah, my mother was a, a career nurse, and, and you know this this phrase kept coming back: tender, loving care. Mm, uh, TLC, they call it for sure. They all knew what they were talking about. Mm, and you know, in our present, uh, the present strictures of, of the NHS, um, people are struggling to give TLC. Yeah. And yeah. you know, with all their might, uh, but yes. they're not helped by the resources that they've got. Um, and that, that all, you know, for me, my favourite doctor, Patrick Troughton, mm. has that. Mm. Has tender, loving care for the people. Now, but it's, that's different from, from being 
you know, sexually interested in them or whatever. He's interested in them because they're human. Yeah. And I think that stand still exists in, in, in the Doctor Who, the new Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. I, absolutely, I do. Um, and, the, and the Doctor as hero. There are some corners of the universe which have bred the most terrible things, things which act against everything that we believe in. They must be fought. And that's the biggest question in science fiction, is it how people adapt? Yeah, mm. and 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 it, the, the the more quickly you have to adapt, the more horrific it can yeah. be. We're taken away from our um, our normal roots. Mm-hmm. Still, that will to survive, to carry on. It sounds like a theme, that doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I can't yeah. imagine where yeah. that's coming. Will, <laughs> will become like us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for uh, giving up your time and, and talking to us. It's been absolutely fascinating mm. and. Um, uh, getting your your insights into into all this, and um, mm, mm. <laughs> there'll be a cliffhanger ending, brilliant for sure. We, maybe maybe you could do that for us again, <laughs> just, just, just so we've just so we've definitely with, got it with more feeling, <laughs> more emotion, please, David. <laughs> Emotionlessness. Okay. Destroy them. Destroy them at once. I know you, you get nothing, hardly anything of this into the, 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 even the three podcasts, but it's just so interesting talking to you three. Oh, thank you. Uh, That's very kind. I mean, because you're informed, you're bright, and it's, it's, you know, it's a real conversation. That's why I love going to events and mm. one or two you know, people there who you can have a really good conversation. Mm. enjoyed listening to that twaddle you can follow us on twitter at dw menagerie that's at dw menagerie and we'll be tweeting various photographs of our inside leg measurements and that sort of thing doctor who is copyright of the bbc no infringements on copyright are intended support doctor who by purchasing dvds and cds and all other media from the bbc any comments made by the complete menagerie (laughs) almost are all our own You've been listening to a Sixth Floor production.